All right, well, we'll go on in our study of Exodus. Today I want to uh, begin looking at the next major theme that I want to develop, keeping in mind now that the overall theme of the book is one of deliverance, as God delivers His people from the place of bondage, place of captivity, brings them into the experience, the liberty then of freedom in relationship to Him. We have considered already then the first theme as why God delivered these people, emphasis upon the covenant, emphasis upon the compassion and the mercy of God upon these that were so afflicted by this bondage. And then how God delivered, and the emphasis there upon His almighty power, His omnipotence, the great focus upon the right hand of his power, the right arm of his power. Pharaoh was nothing. The Egyptians were nothing. When God set to deliver these people, there was nothing that would hinder or frustrate his purpose. And then these last couple of times, we've been looking then at the theme of the blood, that God delivered and God redeemed by the blood of the sacrifice. And Exodus chapter 12, then that great Passover, uh, chapter that initiates this important ceremony, uh, and we spent some time last Lord's Day, as I recall, looking at the significance of the uh, typology, a picture prophecy uh, of what uh, the Lord Jesus Christ was going to do. And it must be understood in that way. Uh, all of the Old Testament uh, ceremonies, and when we come later in the book of Exodus uh, to consider the tabernacle erection and the service in the tabernacle. Uh, all of those were designed by God as picture prophecies uh, of the work of the Lord Jesus. And if they're not understood in that way, uh, I dare say the Old Testament is going to be a mysterious and a closed book uh, for many, many people, as indeed it has uh, become. Uh, the Old Testament sacrifices were never intended uh, as a means of doing anything as far as sin was concerned. Uh, they were pictures of that uh, which would going, was going to be the answer to sin, and that was the Lord Jesus. All right, the next theme, then, that we'll begin considering today uh, are the people. Who is it, exactly, that God delivered from this place of bondage? And uh, we have in this book a wonderful description of, then, who the people of God are. And I think we're going to be impressed, I hope you'll be impressed, uh, as we look at some of the terms, some of the descriptions of the people of God in the book of Exodus, uh, how you see exactly the same terms, uh, the same descriptions applied to the people of God in the New Testament. Uh, and it's not without significance. Uh, it's not simply a matter of coincidence. Uh, but it is indeed that which is part of the revelation of God that indicates that there is a continuity uh, in God's dealings with his people, that those that were saved in the Old Testament dispensation uh, are of the same body, uh, they are of the same church, if you will, uh, that those that are saved in the New Testament dispensation. Uh, exactly the same terms, the same descriptions of who these people are. Uh, and that's what I want then to look at, highlighting then the unique relationship that the redeemed have uh, with God by virtue of that redemption and the uh, wonderful privilege that they enjoy and the consequent responsibility 
uh, that falls upon them as the people of God uh, as well. Uh, privilege and responsibility will be the dual emphasis uh, that we see then in these various descriptions. All right, the first thing that we will isolate here then, make several propositions uh, concerning the people, uh, is that the people of God are special children. And there's a great focus in Exodus upon the family relationship that exists between God and the redeemed. The redeemed, indeed, are a special children as far as the Lord is concerned. Uh, Look at chapter 4. Look at chapter 4 and we'll see some of this language very expressly uh, set down as in this instance, in this context, uh, the Lord is giving instructions to Moses as to Uh, what he is to say to Pharaoh when he makes his way uh, from the wilderness to begin this whole deliverance of the people. Verse 22, And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, Let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. The redeemed are described here as being the sons of God. There is an adoptive relationship here. Paul makes this clear. Skip ahead. Can I show you this in Romans? Uh, In in Romans chapter 9, it's a passage that I take you to uh, on various occasions. One of the most important statements uh, in the New Testament concerning the deity of Christ and his human lineage to Israel. Uh, But look at verse 4 of Romans chapter 9. Have here some of the great privileges uh, that belong to the people of Israel, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all God, blessed forever. Amen. Now notice right at the top of this list of the benefits and the privileges that belong to this ancient nation of Israel was the adoption. Uh, This is a great theological uh, theme in and of itself. Uh, The adoption of sons. Now as we are uh, the created of God, we are his children as it were by virtue of creation. But there is by virtue of redemption a very special relationship that exists Uh, between God and his children as adoption. I think that's one of our questions, is it not in the Catechism? What is adoption? Uh, And it is that which, uh, by the grace of God, whereby we are brought into that relationship, into that fellowship, into that body of redeemed, and enjoying then all of the privileges uh, that belong to the sons of God. Now, the Apostle Paul uh, uses this word adoption. Uh, I think it's all uniquely Paul. I'm, I'm... said that, then I'm trying to think. I think this word occurs five times uh, in the New Testament Scriptures, this word adoption. Uh, And it's a very important theological term. Yes, Paul is the only one that uses it. In Ephesians uh, chapter 1, the emphasis there is upon our adoption by choice. Uh, It's in that context of that amazing predestination uh, whereby we have received the adoption of sons by virtue of that predestination. Uh, In Galatians chapter 4, he uses it uh, to describe that purchase. We are sons by purchase. 
uh, we've been redeemed and therefore purchased as sons whereby we receive that adoption whereby we can cry Abba Father uh, in Romans chapter 8 it occurs twice uh, once in the context of the spirits indwelling uh, we have that uh, present experience of sonship as we have been placed into this relationship with God legally and adoption here is a legal sonship uh, not a natural sonship it's a legal sonship Uh, But having been so adopted, we enjoy all of those privileges of the sons of God, and there the Spirit of God enables us again to cry, Abba, Father. Uh, And then also in Romans chapter 8, we have Paul's statement of that future adoption, the consummation of that adoption. Uh, We're waiting for the adoption to wit that is the redemption of the body, Uh, and emphasizing then that we are the sons of God uh, forever. It is an eternal and unbreakable relationship. Now, I say it's a great theological word that the Apostle Paul develops in those four contexts. And I think it's not without significance then that in this, in a sense, non-theological statement in Romans chapter 9, uh, at the very top, it's a historic statement, uh, but at the very top of the list uh, of advantages and benefits that uh, Israel had uh, is the adoption. And I would submit Uh, that I have to understand adoption here in the same theological sense as I understand it uh, in terms uh, of those great passages in Ephesians, Galatians, and Romans chapter 8. Well, this is the focus here. Uh, And the Lord declares, and here is a declarative sonship, uh, Israel is my son. You tell that to Pharaoh. Uh, And because of that son relationship, uh, God is going to uh, act in their behalf. God obligates himself uh, because of that son-father-son relationship uh, to do what is necessary in behalf of Israel, his son. Uh, Remember Hosea chapter 11 verse 1 speaks of this uh, this very act of deliverance when Israel was a child. Take a look at that passage. Uh, Hosea chapter 11. One of the great statements then that the New Testament even applies uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews, or Hosea rather, chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, uh, then I loved him and called my son uh, out of Egypt. Uh, Now that is a historic reference to the Exodus event. Uh, And God delivered these people Uh, and in so delivering them, established this father-son relationship, and then the care and the concern and the superintendence that God gave to them uh, because of that uh, relationship. Now, let me just digress here, if if I can, uh, for a moment, because this passage is referred to uh, in the New Testament Scriptures. Uh, You recall, what's the context? Uh, In in the New Testament, the book of Matthew, uh, refers to Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1 uh, in terms of a particular episode uh, in the life of the Lord Jesus. Yeah, anybody recall what that is? All right, so here is the, uh, the sentence that, uh, that Herod issued against all of the children of a certain age, uh, having received the word that uh, the king of the Jews would be born in Bethlehem. Uh, at the word of the wise men, they searched the scriptures, discovered that, uh, and 
when the wise men did not return to Pharaoh or to what's-his-face Herod uh, with the information concerning where the Christ was, uh, Herod uh, executed that terrible sentence against all of the uh, children up to two years old or so uh, in that region and a mass slaughter. Uh, but we have God's protection. We have God's protection uh, of the Christ child uh, as he escapes from uh, Palestine, as he escapes from the jurisdiction of Herod uh, and, goes down into, uh, and goes down into Egypt. Uh, and then in connection with that, Matthew says this is a fulfillment of what we have in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. It doesn't give us the reference, but he quotes the passage here. Here is a fulfillment uh, of what the prophet said, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Now, I, I want you to note here, uh, and this is, I think, one of the interesting things. Uh, at what point, at, at what point does Christ, or, or does, does, does Matthew, apply that statement uh, to the whole, uh, the whole episode here of Christ's deliverance from, from, from Herod? It says, out of Egypt have I called my son. Here is the deliverance. Here is the protection, the sustaining uh, of the son. Now, at what point? All right, this is what I want you to see because it demonstrates to me how remarkably well Matthew understood uh, the theology of the book of Hosea. Uh, we, we come to this and uh, we, we look at Hosea 11.1 1, and we say, I, I don't see that that's a prophecy of Christ. See. How in the world can I see that as a prophecy of Christ? Uh, when historically and in the, in the context of Hosea, uh, it very definitely is referring to God's deliverance of the nation of Israel from the land of Egypt uh, during the time of Moses. No question that's what it's referring to, but the New Testament says this is uh, what was said uh, by Hosea the prophet. Now my question again uh, is at what point in that whole narration, in, in that whole episode, is this verse applied to Christ? Upon his exiting Egypt, or upon his entering Egypt. Upon his entering Egypt. All right. Christ leaves Palestine. He goes into Egypt with Joseph. Takes Joseph takes him there. And it's at the point of his entrance into uh, Egypt that we have been the fulfillment of this passage. Out of Egypt have I called my son. But he's going into Egypt. This is not when he's rescued and brought back to Palestine after the death of Herod. No, no, no. It's at the entrance now, now what's, what's the point there? In, in the context of Matthew's argument, in the context of Matthew's argument, uh, where is Egypt? And what is Egypt? It's Palestine. All right? In that context, Egypt refers to Palestine. Uh, and Egypt itself, so we're not looking here at Egypt in a geographical sense. All right? We're not looking at, you're looking confused at me, Judy. Uh, this, is, this is good. This is why I digress here. I could, I'm a teacher. I look at those faces and I say, I'm not getting through here somehow. Uh, read, read, I say very carefully. It's upon his entrance into uh, the land that the Lord says, I brought my son out of, uh, out of Egypt. Now, Matthew is understanding the spiritual significance, the symbolic significance here of Egypt. Uh, Egypt, uh, because of the it's being an iron furnace of affliction here as far as the people are concerned, became a symbol, became an object lesson, if you will, uh, a representation, if you will, in the Old Testament uh, of, uh, of the world. Uh, we often hear that. All right? We often hear that statement that Egypt is a type of the world. 
I'm not sure I want to use that particular expression given how I define type, but nonetheless we hear that term. Egypt is a type of the world. Always? Is Egypt always in the Old Testament a type of the world? I submit no. Uh, There were various times when Egypt was a place of salvation and deliverance uh, for the people. But I will say that after the exodus, after the exodus and the great theological uh, point that was made concerning this deliverance, Egypt then did, from that point on, uh, become an object lesson of the bondage of sin and the uh, and the world, if you will, and its domination over the people uh, of God, and they were then delivered uh, from that. But even in the Old Testament, Egypt refers not just then to a geographical destination or 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 place, uh, but it refers then to whoever and whatever the enemy is. Uh, that are holding bondage and holding sway over the people of God. Even in the book of Hosea, and I think this is what demonstrates to me how remarkable uh, is the, uh, is the uh, understanding that Matthew had of Hosea's argument. Uh, even Hosea uses Egypt to refer to whom? You recall? What, what, what's the great, what was the great threat uh, to Israel during the days of Hosea? Was Egypt a threat? It's not. Egypt was nothing. Uh, Egypt itself was uh, being threatened by other world forces at this time. Egypt had long lost its glory uh, and its power by the time of Hosea. We're talking now the eighth. Uh, we're talking the eighth century uh, B.C. What was the great threat? What nation was the great threat in the eighth century? What nation did God use to bring Israel into captivity? Not not Israel, nor Assyria. All right, Assyria, and the Assyrians. Uh, that geographically were obviously distant from the land of Egypt. Hosea refers to as, as Egypt. He, taught, he refers to the Assyrians as the Egyptians. Uh, symbolically. Symbolically. So the term Egypt here uh, in Hosea is not a unique reference uh, just to that geographical place. But it is used then to represent the enemy of God uh, and the enemy of God's people. Alright, then we put that in the context uh, of the New Testament. Here is Christ. And he's being threatened in Palestine. He's being threatened by Herod. And God delivers him from Egypt. Uh, and I say in, in Matthew's argument, Egypt there is not understood geographically. Uh, it's the place of danger, the place of oppression, the place uh, of, uh, of potential harm for Christ. And God rescued him from that. And it so happened that they went down into Egypt. Uh, but it, I, I think, is remarkable. Am I making sense here to you or not? I'm not. It makes sense to me. I've worked this out in my mind uh, more than once. Well, why, why do I... I'm digressing, all right, because this... But, but you, you follow me? Part of the difficulty here, part of the difficulty here is that people come to the Old Testament. They come to Matthew's statement. And they say, Matthew is doing something with that text that Hosea never intended. All right, that Matthew is doing something with that text that Hosea never intended. Uh, and I submit to you that if we understand the nature of Matthew's argument, uh, he is not saying, this is not a prophecy. All right, This is not, Hosea 11.1 is not a predictive prophecy. Uh, it is a historic statement. It is a historic statement of what God did in delivering his people from the iron furnace of affliction. But what is the point? Here is a type, and it is a type. All right. It is a type. A type is a picture prophecy. A type is an analogy. There's something about, if I can put it this way, there is something about, there is something similar 
to God's delivering the nation of Israel from Egypt, there's something similar to that, to what God did in delivering Christ from the, uh, from, from the, from the power and the sentence of Herod. There's something similar about that. Now, what is it? What is the point of similarity? The point of similarity is not geography. All right? The place is not the issue here. The place is not the issue. The point of similarity is that just as God was obligated, as it were, to deliver that son, so he is obligated and fulfills that obligation to deliver the ideal son uh, and preserve that ideal son and to rescue that ideal son, the Lord Jesus, uh, from the place of danger and the place of bondage. So Matthew is not saying that this is a prophecy of that episode, but the spirit and the essence, if you will, uh, of the deliverance and the obligation of God to deliver his son because of this sonship uh, that was evidenced in the Exodus. That same spirit of obligation and preservation is evidenced uh, in uh, the rescuing of uh, Christ from the hand of Pharaoh. And I, I say just pay attention. It's not without significance the placement of Matthew's statement uh, that is the entrance into Egypt and not the exiting of Egypt. You still not with me? I I don't I don't think so. Right. Yeah. When I look at what, uh, I, I don't say that, let me back up and say this, All right, back up and say this. I don't think the prophets were writing there as just blank, non-thinking entities. I think they understood, yes, the facts of what they were saying. What they did not understand is the timing. All right, look, look at what what Peter says. All right, look at what Peter says. This, this is a very important uh, statement here. And, and the order, going back to your, your, the problem you're seeing, and I recognize your problem, uh, it's, a, it's a summary statement that I think encompasses not just the, the chronology of what you're seeing, but it, the, the language there to me encompasses the whole, the whole episode. But we can argue that if you like. Uh, but, but look at First Peter, uh, chapter 1 and verse 11. Uh, back, back at verse 10. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Now the way the authorized version translates uh, the beginning of verse 11 it seems as though they are searching, as it were, for two things. What am I talking about? And when is this to occur? But in reality, both of those statements 
are temporal words. I don't believe that they were searching what I'm talking about. I don't think they were ignorant and oblivious to the facts of what they were saying. Because we're told the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. There's the two advents, if you will, that we know as the two advents of Christ. They did not know, I think we could argue, they were not uh, privy to the time gap between what we now know from the statement from fulfilled prophecy, that there is some time period between his first coming and his second coming. But they prophesied with understanding concerning the sufferings, concerning the glory uh, that should follow. Uh, and what they were searching to me is, is the time framework. And that's always the issue of prophecy. Uh, Mark and I don't disagree that the Lord is coming back. But what we argue about is the when of it. All right? Uh, and th that's the same thing they, I believe, were uncertain about. So, your question. Were they understanding the essence of what they were saying in terms of its content? I believe yes. I believe yes. I, I don't buy that line that the prophets spoke better than they knew. All right? I, I don't believe that. Uh, they were writing here. They were not, they were not just spaced out zombies uh, that were writing down. They were writing with consciousness. There was a miraculous work of inspiration here, but they understood. Did they understand everything that we know? I dare say they understood more <laughs> because they, they, they knew how to interpret. And, and there was, we, we, sometimes, we sometimes fail uh, when we see a statement to put it in the whole context of preceding revelation. Uh, and the prophets always did that. They, had, I, I, they didn't take this one verse, as it were, out of context. So, I would say to you, in terms of this, uh, is this an intended prophecy of that event in the life of Christ? No. It's not a prophecy in the sense that, behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. All right? That was a predictive prophecy. Uh, that was fulfilled uniquely at the birth of the Lord Jesus. Hosea 11.1 1 is not in that same category. But it is a historic statement. It's a historic, in the context, it's a historic statement. And Hosea was well understanding uh, the, uh, the uh, reference that he's making here to the deliverance from the place of Egypt. But the point, and again to me, this is what Matthew is doing. Matthew is not saying this is a fulfillment of the prophecy. All right? And we'll get into that language of what it means this was fulfilled by the prophet. Uh, not a prophecy in, in that sense, behold, a virgin will conceive. All right? But here is a typical, uh, a, a typical analogy that just as there's something similar, all right? and this is the whole point of a, of, of a typology, it's where we, we tend to go crazy sometimes. Uh, in trying to go tit for tat, uh, here's the historic event, here's the future event, here's the historic event, here's the future event. No, there's a point of similarity uh, that we have to understand in the analogy. And in Hosea's argument, would I say then, maybe this is where you're going, did Hosea have in mind that this is going to apply to the Lord Jesus in that particular episode? I don't think so. Probably. Pardon? It's possible, but then I'm reading a whole lot into it. All right? I'm reading a whole lot into it. My job is to read out of it. All right? And as I look at the context here, there is nothing in that statement that would suggest to me that this is a prophecy of that particular event in the life of Christ. All right? So is that Hosea's intent to give here a predictive prophecy of that episode? I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, 
And I don't think Matthew is saying that he did. Now, if Matthew said that he did, then I have to come back here and say Hosea did. Because I argue very strongly that the New Testament never changes the intent of the Old Testament passage. The New Testament never gives a meaning to, a New Testament pa- or to an Old Testament passage that is not observably discoverable in that text. You see. Now, I've wrestled with this, all right, because I look at that and I, I swear I've come to this and I say, how in the world does that refer to that episode? I studied the... And I, I don't see it. You see it? I don't, I don't see it, Mark. Uh, but when I put this in the theological argument of, of Hosea, and I see how even Hosea is using the term Egypt, I come then and I see what Matthew is doing. Here is the principle of God's delivering his son. All right? uh, and, and just as God delivered, so God de- delivered, uh, delivered Christ. That's the prophecy. All right? it, it, it's the, uh, uh, the, the, the application, if you will, if I, can, if I can use this, of this gnomic truth of this principle, uh, that God does not abandon his son, uh, be it Israel, be it Christ, or be it us. Or be it us. Would that prophecy be destroyed or be in any way... Uh, what's wrong with just accepting this? I, mean, I can see what you're saying. But, uh, well, fine. If, I, you know, I, that, that's a, to me, that's a minor point of it. All right? To me, it's a minor point of it. Uh, but at the same time, all right, let, so let's, let's take it of his exiting. All right? Let's take it of his exiting that all my argument concerning the, my exposition of the context, which is impeccably pure, all right, uh, l- l- let's say that, that that's out, and I'll grant you people, all right, if you want me to grant you that this is a reference to his exiting Egypt, I'll grant that to you, all right, then we still have the question, is this a direct prophecy of that? And I say no. I say no. Uh, because if it is, then this also has a contextual reference to what Hosea is talking about. And then we start having Scripture, now we start having a double, a double intent and a double meaning. And I am deathly opposed uh, to this principle of double fulfillments uh, and multiple uh, meanings in a given text. I, I think that puts us in a very serious difficulty. Because, uh, was it Owen? I think it was John Owen that used to say that if the Scripture means more than one thing, then who knows what it means? All right, it, we, we remove all of the objectivity uh, from that text. So if this is a prophecy of, of that, then that's what it refers to. And it's then isolated then from any historic reference. And I, I don't think that's what's happening. Mark, help me out or cause more trouble. Whatever you want to do. Well, I'm just thinking that there are other prophecies that are not prophecies in the Old Testament but are types that are said to be scripture fulfilled when they happen. And when he was on the cross and said, a bone of him shall not be broken. You know, you're going back to the Passover. This wasn't a prophecy, but it was something that happened in history, but it was a type. A type. Or you go in Exodus 34, it was talks about righteous men. But I think it's probably all based on the Passover. Because again, it says that the scripture is fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. Right. So it wasn't a prophecy as we think of a prophecy, but it was a type that was a prophecy. Exactly. And I define a type as a picture prophecy. But types are based on upon a historic reality. So not everything that is true about the type uh, is applied to the, uh, to, to the antitype. Uh, in this book I'm working on, uh, the chapter that I'm doing right now, is Christ in, in prophecy. All right, where do I find Christ in prophecy? 
Uh, and I, 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 I'm calling the chapter Christ in Word Prophecy. And my next chapter is Christ in Picture Prophecy. All right, to make the distinction between actual spoken prophecies. Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, as an example. Uh, and the, the typical prophecies. Now, my, my, uh, my, my contention is that a type, as a picture prophecy, has divine intent. It is not something that I am foisting upon the Old Testament to try to somehow rescue it for Christian usage. Something that God intended. Uh, but as a picture prophecy, not everything, and I think, again, here is where we tend to go cuckoo sometimes, not everything that, apply, that, that, that is true about that historical picture not everything that is true about that historical picture has a bearing upon the future fulfillment. But there's a point of similarity. There is a broad analogy. And most of the, most of the weird stuff that we hear about typologies is when some guy tries to go tit for tat, write down, uh, write down this historic event, this parallels this in Christ, this parallels this in Christ, this parallels this in Christ. Well, probably not. All right? I want to be objective. What is the context? What are my contextual clues that give me the suggestions? Uh, and, and I would submit to you that when I look at how the Old Testament uses the theology of the Exodus, all right? when I look at how the Old Testament uses the theology of the Exodus, the point, the theological point is not geography. All right? The theological point is not that God always delivers uh, from, uh, from west to east. Uh, that, that's not the point. Uh, the, the point is that God, that God delivers. And that's how I see Matthew uh, using. Well, this is not the passage that I was referring to. I think in this context, again, if you put this in the historic... Yeah, here Egypt, I think, is geographic. Because in this, in this context, they were looking for Egypt. They were looking to Egypt for help. All right? They were looking for Egypt for help. Uh, entering into alliances with Egypt. And, and the Lord says, that's not, that's not, that's not going to work. It's not going to work. Okay? Well, that got off the point a little bit, but that's okay. And, and, this, this, this gets to be complicated. Well, you know, that, that's, that's a point of, of how we understand the placement, all right? So that, that's, uh, to me, a, an interesting thing, but doesn't really, that's not germane to the, the basic application. All right? That's not germane. Uh, I, I, even if that's the point, I don't think the point that, that Matthew is making is, look, I brought him out of Egypt. All right? That's not the point. The point is the deliverance of the, of the Son and the protection uh, of the Son. That's the point uh, of, of application that Matthew uh, is making. Now, uh, yeah, th this is uh, a thing that we wrestle with. If when, we, if when we talk about hermeneutics, the, the, the science, if you will, of interpretation, uh, we have those that argue that the New Testament, because these New Testament authors were themselves inspired, you see, they were inspired, 
that they can do things with the Old Testament that we, who are not inspired, uh, can't do, you see. Uh, so we just look at what Matthew is doing there and say, I, I don't see it. I don't see it, but he's inspired and so therefore he can. And I submit to you, no. I submit to you, no. Because I have one basic author uh, and the meaning can, cannot, cannot be changed. All right? The basic meaning is going to be the same. So my, my suggestion is that when I look at what the New Testament is doing, Rather than throwing my hands up in despair and saying, oh my, because I'm not inspired, I can't do that, let us learn that this is obviously then a divinely sanctioned means of interpretation. And learn what they're doing. And I have to say it's not surface. All right? it's, not, it's not always a surface thing. And this is where we, uh, where, where we give up sometimes. If we don't see it on the surface, we just, ah, you know, they, they change the meaning. Uh, I remember years ago when I was working with this, and I wrestled with this thing. All right. How can Matthew say this is a fulfillment of this one in the context? I could read this all day. I could read this all day uh, and, and never contextually. Could you, Mark? I don't think so. I don't think I'd ever read this contextually. Following Hosea's argument and say, bingo, bango, there's a prophecy of Christ. I, don't, I would never come to that. This is always the passage of the Sure. To prove the fact that the New Testament is yeah, exactly. And I, I, and I say to you that when you understand what Matthew's doing, it, it says, boy. I, I remember my, 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 my reaction uh, when, I, when it finally dawned on me. I said, boy, Matthew really understands the argument of Hosea. You see. He knew the theology of that book. Uh, and it's, it, to me it's a very beautiful, uh, a beautiful illustration. So it is a type of, but not a, uh, a type just of Christ, but it's an illustration of this principle uh, that those that are the sons of God are guaranteed uh, the care and the protection and the preservation uh, of God. Uh, and that's what was true uh, in terms of Christ. So that would also then be true of us? I think so. I believe so. Exactly. Exactly. That's ex- yes, that's exactly what I think. Exactly what I think. That's good. Oh well. Never. I never ask you to agree with me, but just listen and say, "Wish I could think like that." Yeah. Whatever. Uh, okay. But it's it, it's a remarkable statement. We'll develop this, Lord willing, next week. But the, the whole point is that what we see illustrated in the book of Exodus is God, because these people are regarded as sons, uh, that his care and his protection and his uh, concern is going to be, uh, as that father heaped upon them, uh, and uh, the implications then are going to be just the same for us, because we are called the sons of God. You see, We are called the sons of God. Uh, we are going to be called the firstborn. They were the firstborn. Christ was the firstborn. Hebrews 12 says that we are the church, which is the firstborn. So what is true of Christ in that sense is true uh, of us uh, as as well. So the application is very far-reaching. Okay, well, that's good. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do uh, give thanks for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it is uh, revealing to us a message that is profound, that uh, we uh, confess that we don't always... uh, understand and 
but the Spirit of God teaches and leads us. And we pray, Lord, that you'd give us the grace to think through uh, and to see the implications and the applications of your word for us. Uh, we're thankful, Lord, uh, for the Exodus. We're thankful for that historic event. Uh, we're thankful for the Exodus of the Lord Jesus as he gave himself uh, as the sacrifice for our sins to be our deliverer and to be our redeemer, and that in him and through him and because of him, uh, we too are the sons of God. So, Lord, help us. Uh, today, as we gather around your word, meet with us in this next service. Our numbers will obviously be down, Lord, but meet with us. Make this a special Lord's Day. Commune with our hearts and our souls. Uh, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.